the future of AI is not going to be little robot teachers, you know. <laughs> it's not going to be robot teachers full stop. It's such a great fallacy, this. It's going to be more like Google. It's going to be online. It's going to be from Starlink. It's going to be on our, you know, whatever devices we carry around with us coming into our glasses, AR, whatever. It's going to be online stuff, incredibly smart because of the hidden force of AI behind the scenes. It will be invisible, and that's the point. I'm Jeff Cobb. I'm Salisa Steele, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 266 of the Leading Learning Podcast. This is the second episode in our seven-part series on the frontiers of learning technology, and it features a conversation with Donald Clark. Donald Clark is a LearnTech entrepreneur, CEO, professor, researcher, blogger, speaker, and author. His book, Artificial Intelligence for Learning, was published at the end of 2020, and it encapsulates much of his thinking on AI for learning. We recommend it for a better understanding of the uses of AI for learning, and if you're interested in the book, listen to the end of the episode where we extend a special offer to Leading Learning Podcast listeners. Donald regularly blogs on learning technology, and he has a series of posts on 100 learning theorists who have shaped the world of learning. Donald brings almost 40 years' experience in online learning, games, simulations, adaptive learning, chatbots, mobile learning, virtual reality, AI projects, and more to the discussion. And he's an evangelist for the use of technology in learning. In this conversation, his knowledge, his passion, and his optimism about LearnTech and its possibilities come across loud and clear. Salisa spoke with Donald in March 2021. My name's Donald Clark, and uh, you, as you can probably tell, if you're familiar, if you have an ear for accents, I'm originally from Scotland, although I'm uh, doing this podcast from England, a place called Brighton on the south, co- south coast, just south of, of London. Uh, I spent all my adult life in, uh, in technology and learning, bringing those two things together. About 37 years, I think, I've been in this business before the internet, as it were, the very first computers and so on. Uh, but jumping to today, just a thumbnail sketch of, of, of who I am. I'm the, the chief exec of a, an AI learning company that's using AI to create learning online learning content. I'm a director and investor in several other online learning companies that I've reached here in uh, both in Europe and the US. I'm a professor in an English university. And I've taught in American universities in Harvard, Stanford, and so on. I'm the author of a book called AI for Learning, uh, which is my the thing I've focused on for the last four or five years. And then a blogger and then a, a speaker. You know, I give these uh, conference talks, podcasts all over the world. I've been doing that for many years. So, you know, uh, I'm like a lot of people my age, you know, it's a portfolio of things, really. Uh, so that's who I am. So when you think of that phrase, frontiers of learning technology, what comes to mind? <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose, yeah, the frontier is it's a bit like the Star Trek phrase, isn't it? To boldly go where no man has gone before, which commits two crimes, I suppose. One, it's sexist as a split infinitive. But <laughs> <laughs> I suppose for me, because I, I've tended always to work right on that leading, breaking edge of technology, for me now, speaking today, it means two things, artificial intelligence and data, really. That's the new paradigm in technology. It's really... Everything we do online is mediated by AI and data. 
And I don't mean just social media, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. That's all mediated by AI. But uh, if you're watching Netflix, mediated by AI, buy something on Amazon, mediated by AI, use Google Scholar, Google AI. So the whole online world is supported and mediated by AI, except in learning. This is the peculiar thing. And so for the last four or five years, I've focused very much on that, not only building and investing in companies that do that. Uh, I've written a book called AI for Learning that lays out the landscape of how this really radical shift in technology. We've had several big shifts in technology. I mean, the big one is writing, really. You know, that was bigger than anything, really shaped, created the culture of our species, the alphabet, of course, and then printing another explosion in terms of shaping culture. These are all learning technologies, the multipliers of culture. And then we come to the computer in the 70s and then the internet itself. Another event, some would argue, as big as writing. But now the big paradigm shift is into AI and data. And I think that's because it starts to mimic teaching and learning in a much more sophisticated way. So that's my focus. When you said frontier of learning technology, that's what I would call the front, the new frontier. Well, that's very helpful. Thank you. I'm thinking if we sort of begin to get into some of the specifics like you did with, you know, mentioning AI and, and data, calling those out specifically. But when you think about the trend or trends that are out there, I'm going to ask first about those that you might think are, are kind of overhyped or maybe, you know, dead ends. Are there any things that come to mind that kind of fall in that camp as sort of distracting us from technology that might actually help with learning? Well, I think there are certainly some things that are more niche than universal or general. I like to look at the consumer technology that influences learning technology universally. And AI and data is one of those things. Writing is clearly that. The computer is clearly that. Uh, social media is that. But there are some very niche things that people claim to be universal and are not really. They're truly niche. Google Glass is a good example. I think that still has some way to go. And you'll see Apple and others develop those devices because it makes sense to have one and not carry something in your hands. Uh, VR, VR, I think, is it's not a dead end, but it's a niche product, but still has some way to go. We don't quite know where that's going to end up, but it's certainly not as we were not all learning inside VR headsets, as some would imagine. I think AR, augmented reality, is overhyped. I think a lot of this is just Pepper's Ghost type stuff, you know. So what? I can see a globe floating in front of me, but I can see a globe on a 2D screen anyway. So I think some of those things are... Their efficacy in learning is somewhat exaggerated. I think another one which I think is exaggerated is gamification, especially that really primitive Pavlovian, you know, chase rubies around the maze type stuff. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I'm just too old for it. You know, I, it is what it is. I think it can be useful, but only in a Pavlovian badging type sense. I think badges is another one. A lot of hype, not much action, really. What are those trends that really do have significant potential for learning? I like to think about that issue in the following way, which is what are the technologies that really reflect good learning theory, as it were, you know, how we really learn. Uh, that's what we, are, we come up with technologies. Some of them fit learning, some of them don't. The ones that really fit, and this is why I think AI and data is so important, are the ones that shape the interfaces, make learning easier, avoid cognitive overload, and so on. So coming back to those two letters, AI, <laughs> I've been doing this a lot, obviously. <laughs> 
look at the way AI has shaped the interface. I mean, I have in this room I'm sitting in an A-L-E-X-A. I'm not going to pronounce the name because it springs her into action. <laughs> but the voice interface, AI has given us text-to-speech, speech-to-text. That's making uh, these interfaces almost frictionless. You don't have to learn. I mean, we didn't really learn how to speak or understand what people were saying. It came effortlessly. We've evolved. The brain has evolved to do that. We did have to learn how to read and write. However, these big meat fingers that we type in or peck away at touchscreens on is a rather poor bandwidth way of interfacing with anything. I think AI is fitting learning because it makes learning smoother, easier. The interface isn't a problem. You know, we want to get to the learning, not worry about the interface. And then secondly, AI is giving the, or certainly the algorithmic side of AI, along being fueled by data, is allowing us to personalize learning. And this is terribly important. This is the big shift in pedagogy that I think is afforded by AI. The idea that we're not stuck and batched through like sheep in a pen getting sheared, uh, but some sensitivity arises around what we're finding difficult at that exact moment, and we need help on that. Uh, and we vector through learning differently. We're all in a different learning journey, even when you're sitting in a classroom with 30 people. You're all sort of going at a different speed, different things going on in your head different types of difficulties. So this personalization of learning is terribly important. And do you feel like that use of AI for personalization of learning, I mean, where do you feel like we are in the application of that, you know, at the kind of beginning of it? Do you know of great examples of where it actually is being used successfully to support, you know, whether that's large scale or or smaller scale learning interactions? I'll give you some examples. Of course, we tend to think about this as present and future tense, but it's already been around for a couple of decades. I mean, we all use Google, and Google is pure AI. And of course, what it does is gives us whatever we're interested at that exact moment of need. We type something in and we get it. And I don't mean just Google search. I mean the searchability of the content. A lot of learning management systems in VLE have searched. They just search for the titles or the meta tag data. That doesn't hack it, really. You really have to search and interrogate the documents, PowerPoints, videos internally. But, of course, we've had Google for a couple of decades. Google search, no academic, nobody doing a PhD research would ever in their right mind want to just wander up and down shelves looking for bits of paper and journals again. So I think AI has already massively accelerated. That's a real example that's universal, almost global. Let's cut to the quick, though, and more formal and informal types of learning. I think AI is already hitting the deck with... Well, first of all, there's adaptive learning, so that's increasingly being adopted. Interestingly, it's like pools of adoption. A very good example would be Arizona State University, but also in China. And I think the big take-up will be there for various reasons. But there, it's a bit like a sat-nav or GPS. You know, in your car, if you're driving from Boston to New York, you take the wrong turning. It gets you back on course again, literally on course. And the same with adaptive learning. The AI tutor, as it were, gets you back on course if you're studying statistics, maths, biology, American history. All those courses I've been involved in in building using adaptive learning systems. But, of course, there's also the recommendation engine type stuff, which is always looking at you as a student and trying to work out what you need next on your learning journey or giving you learning support through chatbots or whatever, you know, lots of that stuff going on, all enabled by AI. There's anti-plagiarism. There's even the creation of online learning content using AI. So I think we're at this embryonic stage where the sophistication of AI is bringing sophistication to technology-based learning to get us out of the really, well, what was a necessary 
stage, which was almost multimedia production, you know, lots of videos, thinly punctuated by multiple choice questions. That's a lot of e-learning, isn't it? Graphics, text, videos, some multiple choice questions, some scenario-based stuff, maybe some more sophisticated sims, but it's stuck in that rut, the use of media. What it needs to do is become more like a teacher, be more sensitive to you as a learner, be more adaptive, more responsive, to be able to tackle your needs at exactly that moment. And you can only do that by using data, which is terribly important. You need, I need to know about you as an individual, where you are, exactly how you got there, the context you're in. But I also need aggregated data from all the other learners that have taken this course uh, so that I can bring that to bear right at that moment of need. In the near future, I'm thinking maybe three years out, how would you characterize learn tech and that, you know, are we going to have breakthroughs? Is it going to be disruptive innovation, more incremental innovation, something else? How would you describe what you think is going to come in the next three years or so? Well, in the next three years, you'll have a sort of hybrid phase here as you move from one paradigm to another. It's a bit like, you know, Netflix gives you AI mediated, tiled, personalized menu. We all know the Netflix. That's, that's why it's being used in learning now. Nobody has to learn the Netflix menu. You know, it scrolls to the right across a topic and in depth for new topics. So, you know, almost effortless interface. But Netflix exists alongside broadcast television. Those guys are not disappearing anytime soon, although they will start to diminish as the new streaming service come into mode. And we can see that happening now. How much time do we spend watching HBO, Netflix, Disney, as opposed to broadcast television now? A hell of a lot. So I see both systems existing. The best contrast might be between traditional VLEs or LMSs, learning management systems, which will continue for some time because they manage store stuff rather crudely with the SCORM standard, but they are certainly going to be replaced to a very large degree, I think, and quite quickly by learning experience platforms that are really sort of AI and data-driven learning journeys built within them are much more sophisticated, respond to you as a learner and deliver personalized learning. So that was a question about the the nearer future for learn tech. I mean, if you want to pick up and you know, you can take whatever horizon in the distance you want in terms of how many ever years out, but in the more distant future, what do you see as the direction for learn tech? Yeah, I think, you know, this shift is taking place as I speak, having been involved commercially in this stuff, you're getting sort of, you know, three million dollar deals on LXPs now, as and that's brand new. You know, it didn't happen three, four years ago, but it's now happening with the larger global companies, you know, that, that sort of thing starting to happen here. Looking further out, it's always dangerous. The further you go, out, <laughs> the probability drops off dramatically if you're being correct. <laughs> but I think there are some, the AI and data-driven thing is irreversible. It's not going away. That is the technology of the age. The idea that it will go back to a sort of client-server model or something is, is plainly ridiculous. But there's some really interesting things for me that I think that don't get enough billing five years, 10 years out. The first one is maybe maybe even within the three-year horizon, which hasn't got a lot of publicity, and that's Starlink. The underlying technology for online delivery, especially AI and data, is bandwidth, the internet itself. Suddenly, at this unique moment in our species, and I can buy this in England or in America right now for about, I think it's 89 bucks a month or something, $400 to start up. I can get 5G from a satellite. Now, the promise here within a year or two, 
so that's within the three-year horizon, is that high bandwidth 5G will be available anywhere on planet Earth at a reasonable price because the prices will fall with volume. This is an absolutely fascinating thing. Having spent a lot of time year on year in Africa, you know, looking at the terrible problems in the developing world because they don't have enough bandwidth. They're okay with devices, you know, those, those little cheap phones, everybody in Africa has a, a phone and they do far more sophisticated things than we do in more developed countries, running all of their finances from their phone, for example, finding work and so on. But what they lack is bandwidth. And I think once we have 5G moving up to 6G with no blind spots, or you need a little dish, line aside to satellites, I think that will be revolutionary in the, our ability to deliver technology-based learning to anyone, anywhere, anytime. That's never been true before, but it will be. That backed up, of course, the great thing about having high bandwidth then anywhere is that it really does allow you to use personalization and AI and data in a way we can't before because streaming is quite data hungry, but also the use of AI, especially if you're calling back to a service, all of those sort of calls out needs high bandwidth because you don't want latency. You want the experience to be quite smooth. You know, I think this is a big deal. I don't really understand why it's not got as much attention as it should. I'm just going to stop here for an edit because Alexa has just sprung an alarm on me. <laughs> <laughs> Alexa, stop. Now, there we are. Eh? <laughs> right. Is everything okay? What do you know? <laughs> I, think, I think that was a fascinating example of what I was talking about. Actually. Yeah. You know, in, in other words, you know, this pushing and pulling. So, you know, she's set an alarm because I know I've got something to do in about 15 minutes or so. But I think that's that's the real world now, isn't it? Where we're right. really closely enmeshed with technology. You know, it helps us get through the day, as it were. Anyway, sorry, let, let, let me rewind a little bit then. Let's go further out because there's one there's one area that's become quite fascinating for me, and that's the work by Neuralink and others. And we have to be careful, and that's these invasive and non-invasive techniques around the brain. Uh, now, the non-invasive techniques I'm highly suspicious of, the sort of brain link type things where you put a little helmet on and you get a little light flashing on your forehead. Most of this is taking place in China because there is more of a collect, you know, people don't object, have less moral objections. It's more collective culture, Confucian culture. And the parents don't seem to mind as much as they would in a more individualistic culture such as Europe and the US. But actually what they're measuring is EEG and it, Having done a lot of medical training in my time, if you speak to somebody who uses EEG in the medical world, they'll tell you it's by and large a very odd and messy signal. It's a bit like just noise that goes up and down. And so some of these brain sets are claiming to be able to sort of tell whether you're paying attention or not, whether you're actually doing something or not. I think it's far-fetched. However, the invasive techniques are starting to get interesting. So we, perhaps the most famous example is Neuralink uh, from Elon Musk. I mean, we already have this. People think science fiction. We already have the Utah array, and it was 150,000 people with that in their heads, helping them to move their arms and legs. So we know that fibers into the brain, which stimulate portions of the brain, do work. The interesting thing about Neuralink, and there are others doing this, is the ability to read and write to the brain. And so when you've got the really tiny fibers, a fraction of the width of a human hair, and you can put them in without bleeding, non-invasively, well, invasively, but without bleeding, and then you can start reading data, this becomes fascinating because you need AI to interpret that data accurately. But then there is also this weird possibility of writing data back to the brain. <laughs> this is really quite, you know, when you think about this in the, 
and this is getting a bit science fiction, of course, because we're nowhere near this practically. But imagine uh, sometime in the future, you can actually write things to the brain if that were even possible. Then would you pay 50 bucks to learn Spanish in a day? Or would you rather like 99 out of 100 people take years to learn Spanish and never quite get there? <laughs> I think I'd take the 50 buck injection route myself. Now, imagine if this were possible, you know, this massive acceleration of learning through technology. But I think there's a bigger prize at stake here, which the Neuralink people focus on, and that's being able to solve mental illness problems. If you take just one depression, imagine the amount of suffering our species would save if we use that type of technology just to get rid of depression. I think that would be a gargantuan win in terms of the pure quantifiable reduction in suffering. Uh, other forms of psychotic events and so on may be possible with this as well. So there are big prizes at stake here. This is not just, you know, some sort of toys type world or gimmicks or gadgets. There are some real possibilities here that the technology is will afford us, I think. If you're looking for a partner to help you realize the possibilities of learning technology, check out our sponsor for this series. Bench Prep is a pioneer in the modern learning space, digitally transforming professional learning for corporations, credentialing bodies, associations, and training companies for over a decade. With an award-winning learner-centric cloud-based platform, Bench Prep enables learning organizations to deliver the best digital experience to drive learning outcomes and increase revenue. The platform's omni-channel delivery incorporates personalized learning pathways, robust instructional design principles, gamification, and near real-time analytics that allow organizations across all industries to achieve their goals. More than 6 million learners have used BenchPrep's platform to attain academic and professional success. BenchPrep publishes regular content sharing the latest in e-learning trends. To download our latest ebooks, case studies, white papers, and more, go to benchprep.com resources. We're truly grateful to BenchPrep for helping to make this series possible, and we encourage you to find out more at benchprep.com resources. Now, back to the conversation with Donald Clark. If we get learning technology right, kind of as society collectively, what's the good that we might see coming from, from learn tech? And what are some of the things that we need to do to make sure that we get it right? Yeah, this is, this is a really important question for me because I find it quite tiresome at the moment. You know, the, there is a massive army of, in academia especially, where people want to just, well, they, they say they're involved in AI and ethics, but it's not, not really ethics. Ethics is the study of moral principle, good and bad. Actually, what they're doing is it's more like activism. They're just looking for bias or gender issues or racism around AI. You know, it's just looking for the flaws. That's not really ethics because they're just discounting the one other side, which is the good side. Ethics looks for those more, you know, a more balanced view of what's good and bad. We have cars, for example, but we know that about one and a half million people die horrible deaths through car accidents. But we live with that because we have come to a moral accommodation that the benefits outweigh the disadvantages. Now, I think there are big moral issues here. Let's not imagine that the current system really works. I myself think politically that higher education in particular has produced massive inequalities. It's become a generator of inequalities. In the US, we had the, the Trump years and the, the populism there, which 
I think could be partly explained by this oil and water separation off of a graduate college type class that looks down on the other somewhat. <laughs> I think that's certainly true in Europe as well. And we had Brexit here in the in the UK. I think that was a, a sort of result of that. There's some detailed analysis on this by people like David Goodhart and so on. And I agree with this. You know, the abandonment of vocational and practical learning, which I think has been a complete disaster. Uh, so I think the current system doesn't work. What this future technology-driven world, I think, offers, and I gave you Starlink and cheap bandwidth into the rest of the developing world as an example, I think it gives us a chance to balance things out. And I was get education to everyone cheaply. We cannot go on charging people tens of thousands of dollars a day for a little certificate at the end that's really a sorting mechanism. Of course, it has value. Of course, people learn things at college, but about 80% of it is signaling. In other words, it's giving uh, employers a signal that you've stuck it out a little bit, that you come from a certain class and background and so on. I think that's unacceptable now because it's led to such such inequalities and such such a fractious world that I think it, it's no longer sustainable. So I think we have to make learning cheaper, faster, better, more accessible globally. Globally is an important world here. If we're going to solve climate change and get around the economic issues that we all face today, so I think it's a necessary condition for success that technology starts to deliver more and more of this. But let's not imagine that the current system works at all. It's just far too expensive, clumsy, and slow. We're just keeping kids at school longer and longer and longer, getting more and more pieces of paper until it's become almost reductio ad absurdum, eh, that you would need, uh, you know, you need to have three three bits of paper to become a barista almost. You know, we're, we're getting to that level now. Massive underemployment amongst graduates and so on. We have to rebalance the system. Sorry, I was getting quite political there for a moment. but No, I think that that's fine. I mean, you obviously have thought through this and, and see the implications. And I think that's an interesting perspective because so often sometimes when we talk about learning, maybe we're too narrow in how we think about it. But, you know, to your point, learning has the potential to help us solve the existential issues of, of our time, climate change and inequality and things like that. You know, lifelong learning is a sort of glib phrase that's used here. But you know, I just don't buy the idea that lifelong learning is anything to do about going back to college. Hardly any adult who even went through college wants to go back. And hardly any of them do, of course, because it's not really what lifelong learning is about. You know, you become an autonomous learner, you become curious and you learn on your own. And those, that's what we need to open up. That's how it really works in practice. I think the universities and colleges have absolutely no role to play in lifelong learning at all. Those got, you know, a few go back, but hardly anybody does in reality. And I spent a lot of my adult life helping, you know, those kids who didn't go to college who end up, and I, I'm a big believer in opening up a fruitful vocational and other op educational opportunities for those kids. I spent decades doing that. But it's a still a hard fight because all the money naturally flows into the college and university systems. The whole of the schooling system, in a sense, is built around that idea that we have to funnel these kids towards college and university. That, I think, has been a, you know, a 20th and now a 21st century disaster almost. Well, you just mentioned the word disaster, and so this might be <laughs> your, your answer here, but the last question was about sort of if we get it right and kind of, you know, what, what that might bring, you know, I guess the the flip side then is, you know, if we get it wrong, you know, what are the the dangers that we're up against if we don't approach learning technology in, in the right way? And again, what maybe if you have any additional thoughts around 
what are some of those actions that might lead to that detrimental sort of getting it wrong side of a, an approach to learning technology? Yeah, well, the, you know, we, we're already getting it wrong. I mean, the proof points on how wrong it's become, number one is cost. You know, when you get into 1.x trillion federal debt around student loans, where people are struggling to pay that money back because they're unemployed or in lower levels of employment, lower rewards, whether you're still sticking with an academic system that flies people around, you know, academics are the only people in the world who just fly everywhere, every at the drop of a hat to, to a conference. If we think that's acceptable in terms of climate change, then we have to think again, really. You know, we have a 30 billion euro project in Europe called the Erasmus Scheme, which is spent on really a lot of rich kids flying around Europe to universities, you know, going on the, it's just absurd that we should be even thinking, never mind funding that type of stuff. But I think we need to sit back and avoid the traps. We're now in a sort of disaster avoidance mode, aren't we, with economic issues and climate change. Now, what the technology does, I think, is promise a greener world for a start. You know, I, this has been a, you know an amazing. We went through this amazing experiment uh, during COVID, which uh, where almost everybody on the planet had to do online learning. And by and large, I don't buy this idea that all these kids. You know, I passed by my local school recently. It wasn't a bunch of traumatized kids. They were just happy-go-lucky, boisterous kids as usual. I don't think there's been a massive amount of trauma around this. I think that's an educational conceit by and large, the idea that you know when kids are at home with their parents, it's toxic. <laughs> Since when was that ever true? Uh, the, the, I think actually we need to look forward to us almost blend. Uh, you know, I'm not against school. School's, school's marvelous. But uh, I think we have to have more of a blend between the online and offline stuff get your homework stuff sorted out so it's more sophisticated. Some kids actually like learning at home. There's no problem with that at all. Uh, just as we're going to move into this area of blended working, where we may be spending almost certainly two or three, four days a week working at home, the other two days perhaps in an office, or maybe wholly at home, that blended working as well as blended learning. Uh, we're blended eating. You know, we get uh, stuff delivered to our doors <laughs> in times of COVID. So we've seen a future here where everything is blended, blended entertainment. You know, the cinemas have been shut, but never have we watched more movies probably than we have uh, through Netflix or HBO or whatever. So I think the technology has shown us the way here where we can help solve the climate change issue. Of course, technological innovation is ultimately perhaps our only hope on that one. And that's a result of education and learning. So all of this points, I, you know, I'm quite an optimist on this because I think this technology is a force for good. And that's why I get a bit disappointed where I see armies of people on social media just looking for little bits of bias in algorithms when we know damn well, you know, Kahneman got a Nobel Prize for finding 50 to 100 biases in our own brains, most of which are innate and uneducable. Human beings are just packed full of bias. We know this. We're all racist and sexist. It's very difficult to get rid of that. But at least we can work towards improving these other systems to reduce the levels of bias within the systems. So the danger, going back to your original question, is that we throw the baby out with the bathwater and the bath. You know, we, we throw the whole lot out just because we think there's some sort of bias or unfairness within an algorithmic system that actually exists in the human system any, anyway. And actually, I think what's most likely to happen here is that China perhaps would leap ahead because I don't think they have the same view of this and that Europe is certainly lagging behind here because 
Europe tends to be stuck in the middle here, less innovation, loads of regulation. Whereas the Americans, I think one of the great things about America always has innovation on its side. The great tech innovations now have come from the US and will continue to do so, I think. Are there kind of learning-related problems or opportunities that we need technology to address, meaning things we can't solve, you know, without learning technology or perhaps just technology more broadly? Let's focus right down on the learning thing there. That's a really good question because I think technology is already, I mean, a good example of those people with learning difficulties. And by learning difficulties, people often think that accessibility is about people who are maybe blind or deaf or have a hearing or, or visual impairment or physical impairment. Actually, most learning problems are learning difficulties, and we all have them. We all forget almost everything we try and learn, you know, the famous Ebbinghaus forgetting curve. You're 140 years of research, nobody does a damn thing about space practice. It's bizarre. But I think we have a chance of tackling the difficulties every individual has in learning, and we all have them. Now, this has already happened in the world of accessibility, even for people with hearing and visual impairment. It's been AI that's led the way with text-to-speech and speech-to-text systems. Almost everyone with learning difficulties in that area have been helped by AI and data. But I think it's a matter of expanding that out to almost cover everyone. And almost whenever we have a difficulty with something, when we get stuck on something in maths, you know, if you look at mathematics and language learning, there are areas of catastrophic failure. Most people never get anywhere. You know that, you know, you have to learn a language to get into college, you know, and most people end up after a couple of years saying, you know, that's it. <laughs> that's about all you remember after a couple of years. It's totally and utterly bizarre. Uh, and the same in mathematics. Almost everybody falls off the conveyor belt at a very early stage because they get stuck. And mathematics, a subject I've taught, is terribly difficult to both teach and learn. And if you have that catastrophic failure, you never progress. So I think we have this, this increased focus on solving failure Getting people through obstacles, you know, that that sort of big barrier in working memory, you can only hold two or three things in your memory at one time and you've only got about 20 seconds of attention. I think once we pay attention to the learning theory, match that with the technology, we can massively accelerate learning for the good of all, for the good of everyone, as opposed to focusing all our money and time on squeezing people in a very long-winded, holiday-punctuated degree courses. Uh, it's about time we looked at, you know, get, getting our, our fingers out, making things a little bit faster than four or five years. So what advice do you have for a learning business looking to effectively use learning technology and trying to decide, you know, what to focus on, what to invest in, you know, where to put their resources? Well, I think the big shift here now, I'd, 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 at the risk of repetition, <laughs> I do think, you know, uh, you know, learning businesses really have to look at this AI and data stuff with more vigor and we have to go back to learning theory here you know learning is learning is not an event it's a process nobody learns anything by just sitting in a lecture or a one-off little course online or offline almost all, all learning is actually asynchronous and after the event we all know this is true you know we all passed our exams by cramming we didn't pass our exams by sitting in a classroom or watching lectures we did it was all the work we did afterwards to get it into our brains through working memory into long-term memory that's what really mattered we know a lot about that now we know how people learn more importantly we know a lot about how people forget and fail 
And if we start addressing those issues using the technology, we will accelerate learning and have much higher degrees of success. So, you know, I'm really a business person. I've been, in, you know, I started an e-learning company many, many years ago, you know, but before the internet, before being online, floated that in the stock market. I'm a director of several companies. I've invested, I only invest in AI and data-based learning companies now because I think that's almost certainly the future. I think we should all be looking at ourselves and saying, well, what is the consumer technology of the age? When I pick up my smartphone or I watch my TV or I ask Alexa a question, what is the technology that's being used there? We live in the age of algorithms, AI, and data. And if you're not thinking about using that, then somebody else will come along that has that. Those companies are already starting to grow. Uh, the biggest companies in the world, who are they? You know, they're either American or Chinese. They're Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Apple. Those are all really AI companies. They're really AI companies. If you asked any of the CEOs of those companies what the underlying technology was that they use and develop, it would be AI. Same in China with Baidai, Tencent, Alibaba. So these names that I've just said account for most of the value of the stock market at the top end now. And they're all AI companies. Now, they're starting to dabble in education now and learning. And they, so Microsoft uh, made a big move recently. You'll see the others do so. Uh, interestingly, Google this we just bought a company called Wise in India, which is a healthcare chatbot, AI-driven. Uh, you say, why? Oh, that's interesting. Google are in the healthcare market. But it's not really. It's the education market. It's a chatbot that allows you to speak to somebody if you have some uh, depression or whatever, all generated by AI chatbot front end. Interesting that the back end, it has real human therapists who come in if things get you know, a bit too much for you. And of course, on a paid basis, but that's fair enough. Real therapists get, have to get paid. But I think we're looking at hybrid AI human models that are coming along now. And I think that's happening already in adaptive learning, in LXP systems, learning experience uh, platforms. I think the show's on the road already. Well, I've heard you say before, and it's come up in this conversation, you know, that consumer technology drives learning technology. And so in terms of the consumer technology that's out there, I mean, what do you see having the most potential for learning? You know, is it this this voice interface that you've mentioned? Is it the underlying AI that you've repeatedly come back to or other ideas in terms of kind of what the consumer technology is that could be mined for learning technology? When I say AI, of course, AI is not one thing. It is many, many things. Text-to-speech, speech-to-text is one species of AI that relies on natural language processing. But then there are the big models such as GPT-3 that generate online learning content automatically. So I've been, you know, I've built a system that does that. So you just send me, you know, a video, a PowerPoint, a, you know, text, a document. I literally cut and paste it into that system and it generates online learning content and not multiple choice questions, but your know, questions that can be interrogated. So I ask you a short question, you type in some a, a short paragraph, and the AI would interpret that paragraph semantically and meaningfully. This is the sort of advances. It's all these little bits of AI that are moving ahead on a broad front that are allowing us to do things we could never do with technology before. And I think AI will have this big cultural and economic impact. It's a, it's a massive multiplier. You really can scale it. And it extends cognition in a way that other technology doesn't. It's sort of multiple choice question, watching a video. I mean, watching a video is fine, but if I asked you what the second episode of the last box set you watched had, you have no idea. 
because video is a bit like a shooting star. All your memories burn up behind you as you move through it. Because working memory can only hold three or four things. I've got 20 seconds of attention. So a video is a very poor medium in actual fact for learning unless it's emotional or attitudinal shit. But AI is, you know, replacing some of the teaching task, and that's why I think it's more potent. It can scale. It allows us to enable new pedagogies like space practice, interleaving, all the things we know will work but never had the chance to actually apply through technology. And of course, it draws from consumer technology. Some of the great advances that, you know, if you want, if you buy something on Amazon or go on Netflix, the reason they have these personalized tiled screens is they know and they're trying to target what you want. And that's exactly what we need in learning. And then AI melds this hardware and software together in a very potent and powerful fashion. And of course, you mentioned good and bad, but all technology is both good and bad. But I think there's a huge amount of good from this in the learning and education sphere. That's the one that holds most promise for me, as opposed to commerce or selling stuff on eBay, you know, like, or watching more Netflix. Can we watch more Netflix? <laughs> I don't think so. And of course, technology tends to get declassified. Technology is an interesting thing. You know, we, I mentioned writing, printing, books, computers. We don't really regard, we don't really regard many of those things, books, for example, as technology, but they were in their day. So what we tend to do is historically declassify or discount technology, the stuff before we were born, you know, we don't see a, a dishwasher as a piece of technology now, but my mother did. <laughs> and I think that's true of, I think we'll see the current e-learning LMSs all the sort of stuff we see, MOOCs and so on, as a bit sort of passe, still technology, but a bit old hat very, very soon because of this newer age of algorithms and data and AI. So I've heard you describe AI as comprehension without competence. Yeah. Would you talk a little bit about what the implications of that might mean when applying AI in the service of learning? When describing AI to people in the education and learning profession, as it were, it's terribly important that we understand what it is. I think the first phrase I like to use is that it's an idiot savant. In other words, it's incredibly smart at very precise things, but incredibly stupid at general intelligence. And I often use the example of my little robot vacuum cleaner, which is in the next room at the moment. It will come through and clean my house. It has a brain. It can map all my floors out. And it w it's superb. Absolutely. cleans up all the dust. Huge time saver. But it doesn't know anything. You know, I have, a, I have a dog called Doug, a schnauzer. And if he comes and does his business in the carpet, it will smear that into every corner of the room and has. So because it doesn't know anything. <laughs> it doesn't know SHIT, as it were, as the famous <laughs> phrase goes. So this is what you were referring to as competence. Yeah, it's competence without comprehension. It doesn't know anything. It can beat you at chess, poker, go, jeopardy. It doesn't even know it's won. But that's okay. I think we can live with that. It doesn't have to be a sort of form of human intelligence to be effective. And this is terribly important in terms of the application of AI that we don't over anthropomorphize this stuff. So, you know, I, I just get tired. Whenever I turn up at a conference and the speaker before me has been a little robot or something, on the, you know, my heart sinks really. The future of AI is not going to be little robot teachers, you know. <laughs> it's not going to be robot teachers full stop. It's such a great fallacy, this. It's going to be more like Google. It's going to be online. It's going to be from Starlink. It's going to be on our, you know, whatever devices we carry around with us, coming into our glasses, AR, whatever. It's going to be online stuff, incredibly smart because of the hidden force of AI behind the scenes. It will be invisible, and that's the point. But it doesn't need to be 
replacing the human brain in that sense. The human brain is a terrible organ. You know, it's a messy, evolved thing. It's inattentive. It gets easily distracted. It's emotional. It gets depressed. We forget almost everything. You know, we get dementia, Alzheimer's. We die. We can't. We can't network from other brains. We can't upload, download. Computers can do a lot of that stuff. You know, so we can take the load off ourselves by using this technology. And that's what I mean by competence without comprehension. AI has a long way to go before being human in that sense, but it doesn't have to be to be effective. So I wanted to ask about LXPs. Um, I know you've brought them up. I feel like they're getting a lot of uh, attention these days. The Netflix-like learning being very attractive for folks. You know, what are your thoughts on the differences that LXPs represent versus other learning technologies like LMSs? Um, and kind of what do you think is is going to happen with LXPs? And what's driving that shift? Is it more the learner? experience? Is it the data? Is it both working you know, together? Yeah, what's driving it? I think dissatisfaction with the idea that you spend a lot of money just storing and managing stuff on an LMS, which is really mimicking the old course structure. So people commission online learning, a bit like buying sausages, they buy it by an out, but you know, buy the kilogram or whatever. <laughs> and then we deliver these courses, you know, but as I say, learning is a process, not an event. So the LXPs take they flip that model, really, and they say, well, how do people actually learn? Well, we learn in a much more fragmented and informal fashion. And we know this for certain, you know, going way back to the 1970s. Gloria Gary wrote a brilliant book in 1991, how long ago? That's 30 years ago, called EPSSs, Electronic Performance Support Systems. And she talks very eloquently about unintentional learning. And I was most of the learning just happens to us while we're working. We pick things up as we go along. But if you come out of that and say, well, how do people actually learn in the real world? Well, when they get stuck, you know, the, these moments of need that Gottfriedson and Bob Mosher talk about, you know, when things change or I need to know something very quickly, God, I'm interviewing somebody tomorrow. I've forgotten how to do interviews properly. We have to respond to these needs. So LXPs are more dynamic. They use AI for recommending and predicting the future and automating processes. They push stuff to you, but also allow you to pull stuff towards you. So if you get stuck, you've got a search button or in stream the LXP of Help Build. We have a chatbot, which may exist in Slack or wherever you're using your social system. And you just ask it a few questions if you get stuck. Or you have a search button and you go to search and it searches and interrogates all the internal learning content you have to find the right thing for you at that time. So that's pooling stuff through search, but there's also pushing stuff to people like playlists, using predictive engines, recommendation engines to work out what you are most likely to need. And then there are other species of push as well that are more dynamic and process-like, take space practice. Now, we know that space practice works superbly well. How many of us use it in practice and learning? Almost nobody. But now we have the technology where the algorithms themselves can personalize space practice just like Duolingo does with a language, for example. You know, Duolingo is worth 1.5 billion and it has 100 million people. How many people have 100 million learners on their system? And that's because it uses this type of tech. It's adaptive. It's an LXP type system. It will send notifications to you. You know, if you go away for the weekend and you stop learning Spanish, it knows you're going to forget some stuff. So it takes you back a little bit. That's smart. It's this smart technology that's going to shape the future of learning. 
already is in, in many ways. That's why the LXP thing, also the way in which data is used, LXPs are data-driven, often using a learning record store like Learning Locker or whatever to fuel the LXP. Learning management systems, I was there when SCORM was invented tw 20 years ago. And then, even then, I was astounded at how stupid and primitive it was, you know. It was all about little course completion. It's not about completing courses. It's not what learning's about. It was really pushed by the American military and some a very small band of people, actually, who thought that learning was all about little learning objects and completion of objects. It isn't about that. It's a process, a complex process. If we're looking off into the future, this would be very much about leading edge technology in the future. I think we have to have an ethical concern, an ethical sort of, you know, worry sitting on our shoulder. But I also think we need to really focus down on what really matters, and that's people and their needs in terms of accessibility and cost. Everything has just got too expensive, making it far too elitist. We need to bring this down to make sure that people can afford it, that it's available most likely for free. Almost all the learning I do is free. Listening to podcasts, using Google, you name it, it's all free. These podcasts are interesting. I think, you know, you asked a really interesting question yesterday about what's new. And what's new is often surprising, isn't it? Who saw the podcast thing coming? Yeah. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> you know? And then suddenly, I just these amazing stats. That's looking at 60% of all Americans listen regularly to podcasts. Who, who would have predicted that? Nobody predicted. It was like texting and so on. And I think that's that's what really excites me about this sort of technology. You know, I've tried to be predictive a little bit, but we don't really know. And we're going to have some really interesting surprises. But these surprises are good. I love the fact that podcasts exist and that we're sitting on one. I'm sitting on the other side of the planet to you doing this on technology that's free. Mm -hmm. How cool is that? And then you can publish it and anybody else on the planet can see it for free. And when Starlink comes along, anybody, literally anywhere on planet Earth can listen to that podcast for free. I think that's a pretty awesome, weird and wonderful thing. And we often, you know, we, we think we've got so pessimistic about technology. And sometimes I think, don't know what really drives that, but I think we need to have more optimism. Donald Clark is CEO of Wildfire, an AI content creation company and author of Artificial Intelligence for Learning, which is recommended reading if you want to better understand how AI can support learning. And we're pleased to be able to offer Leading Learning Podcast listeners a 20% discount with free delivery in the U.S. The link to the publisher's site is in the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 266. And you can use the code AHR20 to receive the discount. That's all capital letters, AHR20 to receive that discount. We also encourage you to take time to peruse Donald's blog. There you'll find insights and reflections on LearnTech, including the series on 100 learning theorists we mentioned at the start of this episode. You can find a link to Donald's blog in the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 266, along with a transcript and a variety of resources related to my conversation with Donald. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 266, you'll also see options for subscribing to the podcast. To make sure you don't miss the remaining episodes in this series, we encourage you to subscribe. And subscribing also helps us get some data on the impact of the podcast. We would be grateful if you would take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Jeff and I personally appreciate it. 
and reviews and ratings feed the artificial intelligence behind the recommendations that show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple to leave a review and rating. And we encourage you to learn more about the sponsor for this series by visiting benchprep.com slash resources. Lastly, please spread the word about leading learning. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 266, there are links to find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.